I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody. I am recording on Sunday morning, meaning it is Mother's Day, and this is the parent holiday that I don't absolutely hate and uh, dread the approach of because I am thankful to have the most wonderful mother in the entire world. For those of you who know a little bit about my story and my upbringing, my dad wasn't the greatest. Um, my dad's kind of a dick. And my mom was my parent, my number one, my everything growing up. We've been through so much together. I am her only kiddo. So she and I, though we've had dysfunction in the past, have a incredibly close and loving relationship. She Mm. I can't say enough amazing things about my mom, truly. She would drop anything and everything to be there for me and anyone else that she loves. She's too selfless, like truly. She needs to focus more on herself and her own happiness. And hopefully I'm teaching her a little bit about that now as I am now an adult and we have that type of relationship. I just can't think of a better person on the planet than my mom. I really can't. And I know that a lot of people probably feel the same way about their mom, but I promise you, mine is better. Mine is the best. And um, I can just leave it at that. But I also really want to recognize the people who don't have great relationships with their moms, just like I don't have a great relationship with my dad, for the people who absolutely dread this Sunday in May every single year, seeing everyone on social media posting how much they love their moms and how happy they are. And I know I'm part of the problem this year, but I want to be able to celebrate my mom. But at the same time, when I know that Father's Day comes around, I usually try to avoid social media as much as I can because it just makes me feel those feelings of neglect and being unwanted all over again, even as an adult. And it's it's really hard for me to grapple with. And I'm still healing from a lot of that pain. So while I don't have that experience with my mom, I do really empathize and understand what those of you are going through who don't have positive relationships with your moms and I'm so sorry. I hope that you have other examples of motherhood in your life and people that give you that kind of love, even if it's just a friend. Like, I'm always the mom friend in people's lives. And even if I can kind of be that, like, temporary step in for motherhood every once in a while for people, that makes me feel really worthwhile and good. But it's also important to recognize 
the state that our country is in right now in regards to our reproductive care and how we treat our mothers and the people who are able to birth children. Everyone deserves the right to be a parent or not. They shouldn't feel societal pressure, pressure from family or friends or anybody else to start a family if they don't want to. And we all should have that right to make that decision for ourselves. There are also many people out there who have suffered from miscarriages, loss of children, and they are now mothers and parents without someone to celebrate this day with, or maybe you've lost your own mother. And to all of those people, know that my heart is with you today, that you are on my mind. I am never too far away from the sad things in the world. Everything happy, uh, you know, has a dark side. And that is always very present in my mind on this day. And I send you all the biggest hug through the airwaves listening right now. And and I just want to say I love you. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. It's not fair for anybody to have to go through either the loss of a child or the loss of a mother, and I cannot imagine and truly can't empathize, at least yet in my life, but know that I love you very, very much. And then before I get into the episode, I do want to make another quick reminder that the Patreon Angry Feminist Book Club is going strong. There will be another episode up this week with part two of India's story from Still Learning, her audiobook available on Audible. You can get the link in the show notes if you want to listen to it. And I really want to remind y'all that you are able to ask any questions that you want. She is such an open person and is really, really excited to hear from you all and the questions that you may have for her, especially now that she's been out of Nexium for a little over five years. And when she wrote this book, she was two years out or so, and a lot of the you know court stuff was still going on. She was still healing and processing. And I would really, really love to know what some of your questions are for us to have a really, really wonderful conversation. Uh, and then that episode, I think, is actually going to be going up more in June. As I've kind of hinted on the show before, India and I are actually working on a little something, something together, and we're going to be really, really busy through the end of May and beginning of June. So we're going to probably record that while we're kind of working on stuff in the beginning of June together, long distance. So... So you do have a little bit more time to think about the questions that you wanted to ask. To submit your questions, I do have a post that I made about a week and a half ago or so that is just titled questions for India or something like that on the Patreon page where you can leave a comment and leave your questions. And I'm going to go to that specific post to pick out all the questions to ask her. So if you do want to be a part of all of that fun, if you want to join in on the Angry Feminist Book Club, go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click on the link in the show notes. It is $5 to join the Angry Feminist Book Club. But if you want a little bit of extra stuff, you can also join the $8 level feminist faves and get these episodes ad free as well as some extra bonus content every now and again as I decide to throw it up. All right, I'm done giving you all the spiel, but this is all stuff that I'm very, very excited about, and I really, really want more of you to join because it's so much fun. All right, so today I am talking about something that is so in my wheelhouse in some way, and I wanted to talk about figure skating, of course, but more particularly, I want to talk about Asian Americans in figure skating. Historically, figure skating is a very, very white sport, and it stayed that way until like the late 80s, early 90s. And then since then, there has been a boom of Asian American skaters involved in both national and international competitions, winning all the titles. They're amazing. <laughs> I had so many Asian skaters that I looked up to growing up, both on TV and at my ice rink. And it was a community that was such a huge part of skating culture and is becoming more and more a bigger part of skating culture. I believe I read during my research this week that the top three performing countries right now because Russia is not allowed to compete with the ISU, the International Skating Union, due to all of the doping crisis and stuff that I talked about with uh, Camila Vilieva a couple years ago during the Olympics. Anyways, 
Right now, the top three countries in the world are Asian countries, China, Japan, and South Korea. One of the most famous figure skaters of all time comes from South Korea, and her name is Yuna Kim, and she totally revolutionized figure skating in the 2010s and that era. But there's so many amazing skaters before her, and I would have to do like a 10-part series to talk about all of the amazing Asian skaters from Asian countries. So today I'm going to specifically focus on Asian American skaters to highlight them for AAPI Heritage Month here in the United States, and mostly because the majority of the people that I'm talking about today were people that were role models for me, even as a young white girl skating. They were everybody's favorites. They crossed cultural boundaries. And in reading about a lot of their stories, I grew a bigger understanding about the things that they went through in order to be perceived that way by me. What were their struggles? What were the differences of opinions from people who didn't see them the same way that I did? How did the figure skating community welcome or not welcome them into this competitive world? In 1985, Tiffany Chin won the U.S. national title. So when she went to U.S. nationals in 2022 to see so many Asian American skaters in attendance, she was amazed. In the past Olympic Games in 2022, four out of six skaters representing the United States in the singles events alone were Asian American. They included Alyssa Liu, Vincent Zhu, Karen Chen, and Nathan Chen. No relation to Karen. A fifth Asian American skater, Madison Chalk, competed in the ice dancing event. In the United States, figure skating is now accepted as an Asian American sport, with Asians making up about 7% of the American population, but have become overwhelmingly represented at the ice rinks across the country and the world. It was in the early 2000s that Nathan Chen, the 2022 Olympic champion and six-time U.S. champion, was growing up watching skating on TV. He said, I think representation is really important. So to continue seeing faces that kind of look like yours on TV doing really cool things, I think is still useful to a young kid. Something that I learned this week doing research is that almost every Asian American skater of the day seems to be inspired by one of the Asian American pioneers before them. So today I want to talk about some of the Asian skaters throughout history that have truly formed the sport into what it is today. For the past three decades or so, Asian people have dominated the sport of figure skating. In 1955, California's Raymond Sato made history as the first Asian-American skater to win a U.S. title when he won the silver medal with his partner, Barbara Jean Bobby Stein. Raymond was the son of Japanese immigrants and learned how to skate on roller skates. He went on to compete in ice dancing for two decades, collecting many cups and medals. That's a really long competitive career. He was a member of the L.A. Figure Skating Club for 37 years. In 1964, the 19-year-old Joanne Mitsuko Funakoshi made her professional debut as a featured soloist at the Ice Capades show in Honolulu. The president of the Capades told reporters, I have been in the ice show business for nearly 25 years, and I believe Mitsuko is one of the most exciting young skating stars I have ever seen. She, too, was the daughter of Japanese immigrants, and she was born in Chicago. When she was two, she and her family moved to Los Angeles, and she began skating when she was 11 years old. Let me just note here that pretty much everyone I talk about in this story is going to grow up in California or Los Angeles specifically, which is really funny to me. Also, 11 years old seems fairly late to start skating, especially for someone who would go on to be pretty successful. When she was still competing, she became a certified U.S. Figure Skating Association judge in 1963. She was the youngest judge in the country when that happened. And she was still competing at the time. I feel like that would give you an edge if you, like, really, really know the judging system. So, smart gal. Fun fact. Did you know that Vera Wang was a figure skater? She is now known to design competition outfits for some of America's top skaters. She was first approached by Nancy Kerrigan's coach, Mary Scottfold, to design a dress for Nancy ahead of the 1992 Olympics. Vera initially declined, having never designed a skating outfit before, but after some convincing, she agreed. Now, skating dresses are completely different than regular dresses. If you are a fan of Project Runway, you might remember the episode with Sasha Cohen. Gosh, this was probably back in like 2004, so I don't know why I'm asking any of my listeners this, but maybe you'll remember. But Sasha 
fashionista came on Project Runway to get a new dress designed for an ice show. So all of the designers had to make different costumes for her program to Don't Rain on My Parade, which I also skated to because of her. And she never actually ended up being able to use any of the designs that were made because none of them were stretchy enough and worked with her body in order to do all of the things that she had to do on the ice. And I had the most amazing dress designer growing up named Patty. And Patty was the most particular person on the planet with the way everything fit. Like she would want me to do my whole program just on the ground in the outfit so she could see where things are moving or pulling or if I'm like slipping a nip somewhere, you know, things like that. And it really takes a lot of care, patience and time because you don't want the costume to inhibit the skater's ability to be their athletic selves. But at the same time, such a huge part of skating is the costume and the artistry and all of that, which unfortunately is why a lot of people like to not call it a sport. But I say fuck you to them. Vera said once she decided to join this project, I was always very reticent because I know as a skater the responsibility it is. If there's any wardrobe malfunction, you can ruin someone's Olympic championship. That's how insane that is. When you stop and think about it, the responsibility is staggering. She did not make the infamous white dress that Nancy wore when she was attacked by Tanya Harding's goons, but she did make another beautiful white dress. So that's why I had to go and make sure. I was like, oh my God, did she make the dress? Vera herself started skating lessons in New Jersey and eventually became a competitive figure skater. She even competed in pairs at the 1968 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Vera created five designs for Michelle Kwan, one of which was a memorable gold dress that Michelle wore during her 1998 and 2002 Olympics for her Field of Gold performance. She also made Michelle's wedding dress in 2013. She began making men's designs when the 2010 season commenced and Evan Lysacek asked for a Vera design. He won the gold medal wearing Vera's black one-piece outfit featuring a bejeweled snake that wrapped around his neck and torso. Next up is Nathan Chen, who was dressed by Vera for his disappointing 2018 Olympic debut, but she also redesigned his Rocketman costume made specifically for the 2022 Olympic Games, where he came out victorious. Vera joked in an interview, It's the two Fs, figure skating and fashion. But in all fairness, that I can meld the two was beyond my wildest. I never dreamt that I would come back to figure skating in the capacity that I came back to. Now, I want to go into some Asian American skaters that truly made the hugest difference, at least in my opinion, in U.S. figure skating. I mentioned Tiffany Chin at the top of the episode as a skater who skated in the 80s, who came back to the 2022 Olympics to be amazed at how many Asian American representatives the U.S. had. She's got a really interesting and somewhat tragic story that I didn't really know. And I didn't know much about Tiffany Chin in general because she was a little bit ahead of my time. So I was really glad to get to know more about her over the past week. Tiffany was born on October 3rd, 1967 in Oakland, California and grew up in San Diego. Her mom, Marjorie, bought her first pair of skates at a garage sale in San Diego for $1. Now, for those of you to go way back in your mind to remember when I covered Mabel Fairbanks, who was a black trailblazer in figure skating, I did mention Tiffany in that episode as well, I believe, because Tiffany was coached by Mabel when she first started. Mabel eventually recommended a new coach for Tiffany to help further her in the sport named Janet Champion, who was a former U.S. champion. How fitting. This skater-coach relationship wouldn't last long, though, as Tiffany's mother Marjorie fired her shortly after beginning working together. Marjorie then hired Frank Carroll to coach her daughter. Frank Carroll is, like, one of the gods of figure skating. In my opinion, there's, like, a holy trinity. And I'm not going to include the bitch Russian coach, so forget about that right now. The holy trinity, in my eyes, is Frank Carroll, John Nix, and Roth. I'm not saying his whole name right now. (laughs) But... Frank Carroll is amazing. I don't know how well he did as a competitive skater, but he has coached some of the biggest names in the game. Before Tiffany, Frank had already helped mold a couple of national title holders, but after Tiffany, he would go on to coach names like Michelle Kwan, Evan Lysacek, Timothy Gable, the first quad king, eating disorder awareness advocate Jenny Kirk, and the kind and artistically impeccable Carolina Costner and Mariah Nagasu who landed an amazing triple axel in competition at the 2018 Olympics. 
and helped three skaters win world titles. Together, Frank helped Tiffany get her first junior world title in 1981. In 1982, she made her senior debut when she was only 14 years old. I'm pretty sure that's not even allowed now. Unfortunately, the relationship between Frank and Marjorie wasn't great, and Frank stepped down as Tiffany's coach. It sucks to see already in this story how Tiffany's mother may have been an inhibitor in Tiffany's skating career. It seems like Marjorie made Tiffany's life incredibly stressful, and her behavior didn't do much to help Tiffany make friends at the rink either. Other moms would make accusations about Marjorie making Tiffany skate unbelievable hours every single day and accusations that she would beat her. Kids didn't seem to like Tiffany much either. She once said in an interview, I remember when I was growing up, a little girl told me, you're really good, but you know you'll never be a champion. Figure skating champions have blonde hair and blue eyes, and you don't have either. Once there were even anonymous calls made to the San Diego Police Department with accusations of child abuse against Marjorie. The police even came to the house for a welfare check and didn't find any evidence of abuse. One coach told an interviewer once how an announcer tried to make a racist nickname stick to Tiffany and how Marjorie was known in the skating world as the Dragon Lady. The LA Times even made thinly veiled racist comments about Tiffany, calling her an exotic beauty. And all of this is strange, too, because she's still a teenager at this time. Why are we fetishizing and sexualizing her so much? Marjorie, her mom, thinks all of this just came from jealousy. Tiffany was good. She was landing triple axles in practice five years before Japan's Midori Ito became the first woman to land the jump in competition. Well, they went from one legend to another, moving on to Sir John Nix, who I mentioned, who taught Peggy Fleming, Pairs team Ty Babylonia and Randy Gardner, Christy Yamaguchi for a time, Ashley Wagner, and most notably, in my opinion, Sasha Cohen. At the national championships in 1984, she placed fourth in the compulsory figures category, which is essentially how figure skating started. It was like making different patterns on the ice while you skated. So you always had to have your ice super clean and you had to like stare at what marks your skates made. My first coach when I was little thought this would be a really good idea to teach me figures, even though the worst thing you could do to me was to make me work on something called moves in the field or moves on the field. I can't remember what it was called, but it was all just like edges and turns and boring shit. Like I wanted to jump around. I didn't want to like focus on the edges of my turns and blah, 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 blah. So I have to get up at like five in the morning to go to the rink. So we would have the ice to ourselves and a completely clean rink. So we could literally stare at the little squares that I would have to make in the ice. And it was the fucking worst. Anyways, thankfully that is now ancient history and no one even thinks about figures anymore. It's just part of the name of the sport. But yeah, so she placed fourth in the figures category. I don't even think I would have placed that high, but she placed first in both her short and long program, leading her to finishing in second place. This landed her a spot on the 1984 USA Olympic team. As the games approached, Tiffany was being billed as the U.S.'s best shot at a medal in the women's category. At the Olympics, she placed 12th in figures, second in the short program, and third in the free skate. By the way, I sometimes use free skate and long program interchangeably, but they're the same thing. The short program just has more rules around it. Sometimes it's called the compulsory program still to this day, but usually it's just called a short, where the long program is a little bit more free. You do have more ability to choose different jumps and spins and whatever. It's not as like regimented. She ended up placing fourth overall at the age of 16 at the Olympics. So she was then penciled in to win for 1988. In 1985, Tiffany became the first Asian American to win a title at the U.S. Nationals. She then won a pair of bronze medals at Worlds in 85 and 86, competing alongside Debbie Thomas, the first black skater to ever medal at the Olympics. After all of this, she began suffering from an injury and had to drop out of Worlds. Injuries would plague her for the rest of her career as she desperately tried to regain her competitiveness. She eventually retired in 1987 when she was only 20 years old. That's so sad to me, thinking of this bright, shining star who I think was just used. She was worked way too hard, way too young. She suffered from muscle imbalances in her hips, knees, and ankles. And I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about muscle imbalances, 
But I know from my own personal experience, when my first coach was not properly training me off the ice and building up my my muscle strength, especially because I was so tiny, I was getting injuries because my body couldn't support myself when I was doing these really difficult things. And she was pushing me on the ice to do a lot of things that I wasn't ready for because I was like her little star pupil and she wanted me to show off essentially. Besides the injuries, it seems like Tiffany's mental health was suffering too. Frank Carroll once said in an interview, I think she spent a lot of time being depressed and unhappy. Tiffany echoed this in another interview saying, It wasn't only when I was skating bad. Sometimes it was when I was skating well, too. It's not always such a happy sport. You always try to make everything so pretty and graceful and easy and joyful. And a lot of times it's not. Oof, that hit me hard, Tiff. I was just having this conversation with my friend Maria, who I met up with about a week ago. Leaving skating was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my entire life, and I'm still wondering to this day if I did things the right way and regret ending things the way I did. Tiffany talks in this interview with the LA Times about how hard it is to give people a simple answer as to why she left skating, and I've often felt the same way. When I was like 13, 14, and a little into 15 years old, I was good. I was winning, spending all of my time training, had great friends, But then my skating started going downhill. I lost jumps that used to be easy for me and became more and more frustrated. Before this time of decline, I always based my worth on how well I skated that day. So of course, this was only intensified when I was always skating badly. If I fell a lot, popped out of a lot of jumps, got in an argument with my coach over my attitude, any of that, I took it out on myself as not being good enough. I started cutting myself when I was 15, and skating was a quote-unquote reason I did it many times. My cutting also made things complicated at the rink and at competitions. I love my coach, Kim. I am so thankful to her, but she was only in her mid-20s and had never experienced a kid like me before and seemed embarrassed to be seen with a skater with cut marks on her body. She would ask me to cover up, which made me feel self-conscious. My secondary coach, however, Val, was definitely a lifesaver. One session, we spent the whole time skating slowly around the rink, and I spilled my guts to her about everything. We just skated in circles for the whole hour, and at the end, she sat and talked with my mom and told her not to worry about paying her that day. (laughs) I keep crying when I wrote this out, and now when I'm telling you this story, because I'm so thankful to Val for, like, seeing me (laughs) cut. I'm on my period. I'm sorry, everybody, but now I'm crying. Okay, I need to pause. One second. Oh, okay. I had I can't even like read my notes. Like, don't have my glasses on anymore. But I need to let my eyes uh dry out after that one. But truly, um, I'm so thankful to Val. Um, both Val and Kim were there when I told them that I was quitting skating, and it was oh, Kim was definitely a little bit irritated, I think, and Val was just so like kind and understanding and wonderful and oh I love you Val and Kim okay I can get through this (laughs) so on top of all of the mental shit that I was going through I also suffered from so many injuries throughout my skating life my right knee had been fucked up since I was 10 or 11 my right knee had been giving me problems since I was 12 I earned a neck injury slipping in dance when I was 12 as well, and by the time I was 15, my shoulder was completely fucked. Like here, listen to my shoulder today. Yeah. It's not in its socket fully, which I'm convinced happened because of falling and catching myself on that side for like 13 years of my life. You rotate counterclockwise in the air, so with the momentum, your fall goes to that left side. At least if you're a right-handed skater. So with all of that combined... I quit skating without getting my senior level gold tests, feeling like I had nothing to show for the years of dedication and literally my whole life to this sport. And then I was gone. As far as Tiffany's relationship with her mother goes, it's all too common in the skating world. I had a friend whose mom and dad locked their freezer at night so my friend couldn't have ice cream. Another friend, who was two years younger than me, called me in the middle of the night when I was 13 years old, telling me that her mom had hit her and she was worried her nose was broken. This same mother-daughter duo had a blow-up at Junior Nationals one year because my friend skated poorly in her short program and wouldn't go on to the long. She was only 11 years old at this time, and she was an amazing skater, and she just had a bad day. 
sitting in the stands while other skaters competed. This mother screamed at my friend, with another friend of mine protecting her under her jacket as she cried and cowered. Her mom then took all the fancy Juicy Couture skating stuff she had gotten her daughter and handed it out to random girls competing, because they were the real champions. Then she was just gone. She left. We were in Colorado. I wasn't competing. I was just there to watch and support my friends. And she had gone back to the hotel, taken all of her and my friend's things, got a plane ticket, and went back to Minnesota. Her husband, two sons, and daughter were stranded. Now, I'm not saying Marjorie was like this, but the way that Tiffany was treated by other skaters and the things that I've read, to me, Marjorie seems like she's borderline maybe physically abusive, especially if she is making her daughter train unbelievable hours, but emotionally abusive for sure. So many parents aren't able to see their children as autonomous beings, and they see them as a reflection of themselves. And it seems like Marjorie, much like the parents that I knew growing up, really, really fits that. Marjorie once said in an interview about her parenting style, Where I come from, a mother's role is respected. If we see a mother in China getting mad at a child, we normally presume the child did something wrong. We're not so quick to presume the mother is wrong. I felt I owed it to my husband, that his money was well spent. I owed it to Tiffany, that she was doing something with her talent and also become educated. Under these circumstances, what did I do wrong? Well, of course, there's nothing wrong with helping your child reach their dreams. And I understand skating is really expensive and you want to make sure that the money you're spending is going to good use. But you also need to treat your child like a human being and understand her wants and needs and desires. And I know different cultures are different, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have to understand or even like the way that she treated her daughter. In 1986, Marjorie was named Mother of the Year by the Chinese Women of America. Before we go on to more skaters, I gotta pee, so let's take a quick break. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, my bladder is empty. My laundry timer went off, so it is in the dryer. And I am ready to talk to you about more of my favorite skaters. One of the major game changers for Asian Americans in figure skating was Christy motherfucking Yamaguchi. Christy was incredibly inspired when watching Tiffany Chin compete in the Olympics in 1984 and once said in an interview, I had many role models coming up as a skater. One of them was U.S. champion Tiffany Chin. I identified with her Asian American heritage. That connection made an impression that I could be like her. She blazed the trail for me to follow. I hope we as Asian Americans can continue that in all walks of life. 
Both Christy Yamaguchi and Michelle Kwan are cancer queens. Thank you very much. Christy was born on July 12th, 1971 in Hayward, California, a third generation descendant of Japanese immigrants. Her maternal grandfather earned a bronze medal during World War II as the only Japanese soldier in his troop. Meanwhile, back in the States, her grandmother was given special clearance to leave the Hart Mountain Camp, the same as Kiyoshi from last week and his family lived in. Unfortunately, she was unable to find work when she was released and ended up in another camp in Colorado. In 1988, Christy competed in both the pairs and single skating events at Junior Worlds. Her partner would also go on to be an incredibly successful single skater, Rudy Galindo, who I should talk about during Pride Month because, oh my god, first like openly gay man in figure skating, so fabulous, I love him. And together, this pair's team won first place at Nationals. Christy dominated the singles competition as well, taking home both junior world titles. But the medal ceremony was delayed. Christy finished ahead of two Japanese skaters, but the organizers seemed to be doing their best to hunt down another Japanese flag. In an article, Christy remembers recalling to herself, Can someone tell them I'm American? In 1991, she won second place to Tanya Harding at the U.S. Championships, which was her third consecutive silver medal at Nationals. However, the following month in Germany, she won the 1991 World Championships. Christy Yamaguchi and Natasha Kuchiki made history as this was the first time two Asian American skaters won medals at the same ISU championship. That year, the American ladies team, which consisted of Christy, Tanya Harding, and Nancy Kerrigan, became the only national ladies team to have its members sweep the world's podium until 2021 when the Russian robots did it. Christy finally won a U.S. title in the year of my birth, 1992, and gained a spot at the 1992 Olympics. I used to think that there was some sort of cosmic involvement with the fact that I was born the same year as the 1992 Winter Olympics, but I doubt it. Now, this Olympic Games wasn't a sure thing for Christy. Two of her competitors, Tanya Harding and Japan's Midori Ito, were consistently landing triple axles in competition, and Christy didn't have one of those. Both Harding and Ito fell on their triple axles in competition, though, leaving the door open for Christy's imperfect program to win first place. While Christy may not have had the most difficult jumps in her program, she outskated others with her difficult combination spins and detailed choreography. With this win, she became the first Asian American to win gold at the Winter Games in any sport. Her face landed on a box of Special K and on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but compared to other American winners before her, she wasn't receiving the same kind of endorsement. In an interview, she once noted that her Olympic win came just a few weeks before the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. She said, It was a hard time. At the time, with the auto industry, there was a lot of tension with Japanese-American relations. I think that's what led to people think that may be why she's not getting endorsements. I thought maybe that could be a little bit of it. Who knows? I'm 20. I'm shy. I was not well-spoken. You're just so young and naive. On the flip side, she was shown incredible support from the Asian-American community. She would receive so many letters from little girls who said they looked up to her and that they wanted to be just like her. Japanese-American groups also began reaching out to the Yamaguchi family to offer their support. Christy became more and more of a household name after the big incident regarding her teammates Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, which made figure skating must-see television. Honestly, we probably have a lot to thank Tanya Harding for for the popularity of skating in the 90s. People tuned in for the Tanya-Nancy shit show and stuck around long enough to start gaining more and more skating fans. When she was done competing, she moved on to a professional skating career, meaning she would skate in shows like Stars on Ice, Champions on Ice, the likes. When Scott Hamilton, the 1984 Olympic champion, founded Stars on Ice, it was a 30-city tour. But he said, when Christy joined it, it became a 60-city tour overnight. And she had a great, incredible capacity to draw. People adored her. In 2008, she was the recipient of the Inspiration Award at the 2008 Asian Excellence Awards. She married a professional hockey player, Brett Hedekin, in 2000, who she met at the 1992 Olympic Games when he played for Team USA. The two have a summer home on Gull Lake in northern Minnesota, and Christy is still active in Stars on Ice and other ice shows. And since Christy was still so active in Stars on Ice and other ice shows, she needed to keep up her skills on vacation, too. 
So I've mentioned on the show before that I had a cabin as a kid, very common in Minnesota, in a northern town on a lake. And Gull Lake is probably only about 20 minutes away from the town that my cabin was in. And when I was young, like probably five or six, they built an ice rink just a few miles down from my cabin that was kind of attached to this resort. And of course, my coaches wouldn't even let me take a weekend off. So I always had to at least skate one day a weekend when I was at the cabin in the summer. And I would go and it was the best because like the ice was always empty and me and my friends could like play and make up programs and do jumping challenges and make up weird spin combos. And like it was just so much fun. And one time me and my friend Sally were hanging out at the cabin. I always had a skating friend with me because those were my only friends. And my mom was like, we got to go to the rink now. We got to go. And Sally and I were like, why? Like, what's going on? She's like, we just, we got to go to the rink, like get dressed, grab your stuff. So we did. And we were very confused. We got dressed, kind of mad because it was beautiful outside and we wanted to play in the water, but we got on our tights and our skating skirts and, you know, all that kind of stuff and got in my mom's car and drove to the rink. So when we walk in, the lobby is dark. There's no lights on, but the lights for the rink is on. And there's one woman skating on the ice. And the first thing Sally and I do is look at each other and go, oh, God, we have to share the rink with someone like this sucks. We wanted to be by ourselves. And then all of a sudden, the skater gets a little bit closer to the lobby and our jaws drop. It's Christy Yamaguchi. My mom had received a call from the skating club or rinks director or whatever and was like oh my gosh Christy's here you got to get the kids down here now so thank goodness that that person made the call because that was like the biggest day of my life throughout my childhood I was so starstruck my mom was talking the whole time Sally and I I think just remained silent and like didn't know what to do because we were in the presence of like royalty and you know we talked a lot about Minnesota and skating and my mom probably said a lot of things about me and Sally but all I remember is just sitting next to her staring and not knowing what to say and it's hard to think of me ever being speechless but she was so nice she signed stuff for us I don't know if we took photos or not but she was super super cool and I think we might have seen her a couple other times after that just very very briefly and passing at the rink but I was always like "Mm, yeah Christy Yamaguchi skates at my rink whatever all right let's move on to someone that I'm hoping all of you have heard of and that is the legendary Michelle Kwan Four years after Christy won her Olympic gold medal, 15-year-old Michelle Kwan won the world championships. Michelle's birthday is just two days before mine, and she shares a birthday with Ringo Starr. I'm very jealous that my mom didn't pop me out two days before. She was born on July 7th, 1980, making her another cancer queen, and she was born in, you guessed it, California in the city of Torrance. Her parents are Danny and Estella, who are Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong. Michelle grew up speaking both Cantonese and English at home. Her interest in skating began when she followed her two older siblings, Ron, a hockey player, and Karen, also a figure skater, onto the ice. When Michelle was about eight, she and her sister began their more serious training. They would practice three to four hours a day and woke up at 4.30 a.m. every morning to get to the rink by five to skate before school. Thankfully, I never had to do this every morning, and my mom eventually decided to homeschool me for half of the day so I could have good ice time rather than making me wake up at the butt crack of dawn. Once school was over, they were back at the rink again. And talk to pretty much any figure skater, and they will tell you that this is how they spent many years of their lives. She left public school to be homeschooled in 1994 when she was in the eighth grade. Same here. Now, one thing to know is skating is such a privileged sport because it is ungodly expensive. Like my mom and I never shared a single dollar amount with my father because I think that he would have had an aneurysm. And by the time Michelle was 10 years old, her family could no longer afford a coach. Thankfully, a fellow member of the L.A. Figure Skating Club offered financial assistance, which allowed them to begin training at the Ice Castle International Training Center in Lake Arrowhead, California. Michelle and Karen began working with Frank Carroll in 1991, and just after one year under his tutelage, Michelle placed ninth at the junior level at Nationals. At the age of only 12 years old, she passed her gold skating tests, a nickname used for the senior level tests needed to compete at the senior or top level. 
Frank Carroll, however, did not want Michelle to skate at the senior level yet, and Michelle took this test behind his back, so he couldn't tell her no. Whew, wonder how that went over. It turns out Michelle didn't really make the wrong choice, because in 1993, she finished sixth at nationals in the senior level, and in the next season, she won the junior world championships. Michelle was also involved in the Nancy-Tanya drama in some small way. When both Tanya and Nancy were allowed to compete at nationals in 1994, it became a media frenzy that Michelle was literally skating around. Michelle finished second to Tanya, which should have secured her a spot on the U.S. Olympic team, but that place was instead given to Nancy Kerrigan, who was in recovery from her injury given out by Tanya. 13-year-old Michelle Kwan went to the Norway Olympics as an alternate, but did not compete. One of these days, I'm going to do a whole Tanya-Nancy episode because that story is wild. Then, both Nancy and Tanya dropped out of the 1994 World Championships, and another teammate, Nicole Bobak, did not qualify, which left Michelle alone to represent the United States at Worlds. By 1995, Michelle began to develop a more mature skating style. Her speed, extension, jump technique, and artistry also improved immensely. The skating world didn't really know what to do about this. We were used to this cute, adorable, tiny little Michelle, and now all of a sudden she was skating in somewhat more revealing costumes, meaning nude mesh over your midriff, but whatever, and started skating these more mature programs and things like that. Her coach, Frank, explained this decision in a change of skating style for Michelle by saying, The judges were looking for the ladies' champion of the world, not the girls' champion of the world. She skated her short and long programs to music from the film score King of Kings, portraying Salome seducing King Herod. She began to wear heavier makeup, adorning the corners of her eyes with rhinestones, and fashioning her hair in a bun instead of her usual ponytail. According to writer Ellen Kestenbaum, she was a, quote, sexual being. Gross, she's like 15 years old, saying that the images in her programs that year evoked, quote, images of a sensual, luxurious, exotic Middle East. Go fuck yourself, Kestenbaum. Would they say these same words about Nancy Kerrigan doing a similar program? I don't think so. However upset people were by her programs, no one could deny her new abilities. She landed seven triple jumps, one done in a combination. Kestenbaum also wrote that Michelle's increased speed and strong debut of triple-triple jumps say more than her hairstyle or makeup about her maturity as a skater. She won both U.S. Nationals and Worlds in 1996. At Worlds, she narrowly edged out the defending champion, Chen Lu, in an incredibly close competition, with both women given two perfect 6.0 scores for presentation in their free skates. Michelle then became the third youngest skater to hold both titles. The 1996-1997 season marked the beginning of a winning streak for Michelle that lasted more than a year. However, following the success, Michelle suffered with a growth spurt, which threw off her jumps and she struggled to make it back on top for a while. Tara Lipinski was the new shiny toy on the market in the U.S. figure skating world and she began winning most of the competitions in this time. By the 97-98 Olympic season, the American press played up the Kwan Lipinski rivalry for all it was worth. Michelle regained her national title, taking it back from Tara in 1998, despite having a fractured toe during the competition. Both women, or girls really, were favored to win the 1998 Olympics in Nagano, Japan. Michelle ended in first place after the short, with Tara in second. Though she skated a clean seven-triple program, Michelle still ended up second place to Lipinski, who also did seven triples, including two triple-triple combinations. Tara, at only 15 years old, would retire shortly after her Olympic win, but Michelle was just getting started. Again, she won the 2000 U.S. national title and world title. And that year, she began working with Vera Wang, who would go on to design most of her competition and show costumes for the next six years. She won the national title again in 2001 and received first placements from all nine of the judges, both in short and long programs. There's nothing closer to perfection than that. She, of course, won Worlds in 2001 as well. So this was why Michelle Kwan was not my favorite skater growing up. Michelle was the obvious choice. The Nick Carter from Backstreet Boys or Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. You know they're going to win, so what's the fun in cheering them on? 
Sasha may have a bad attitude that I wouldn't discover until I was an adult. She was inconsistent in her skating, but stunning to watch. And when she skated well, she skated better than anybody else, in my opinion. It shocked the skating world when Michelle decided to end her coaching relationship with Frank Carroll just two days before Skate America was set to begin. This is not heard of. (laughs) Very few skaters can compete successfully without a coach. In an interview, Michelle said that she needed to take responsibility for her skating. She arrived coachless to the 2002 U.S. Championships and won the entire competition. This earned her yet another spot on yet another Olympic team, and this time she was joined by my favorite, Sasha Cohen, and 16-year-old newcomer Sarah Hughes. At the Olympics, Michelle two-footed one jump and fell on another, while the young and inexperienced Sarah Hughes skated the program of her life, kicking the reigning champion off her pedestal and winning the whole damn thing. To put it in perspective, no one thought much of Sarah Hughes at all at the time. She was virtually unknown to the skating world. She was young, tall, but lanky and awkward, with braces and a very outdated Dorothy Hamill haircut. No one had even heard of her coach, Robin Wagner, at the time. Also, she was in fourth place after the short program. You'd have to skate a damn near perfect program to go from fourth to first place with the lineup of skaters they had that year at the Olympics. After another disappointing loss, she made a coaching switch to Scott Williams in the summer of 2002, then again to Raphael Arituian in the fall of 2003, one of my holy trinity. At the U.S. Championships in 2005, she won her ninth national title, tying the all-time record set by Maribel Vincent Owen. Funnily enough, Maribel coached Frank Carroll when he was a skater. With the change of judging system and a hip injury, Michelle became less consistent and began winning less and less. Ah, I remember when they started changing the judging system a lot. The 2002 Olympics were actually really, really important because there was this huge judging scandal between the Canadian pairs and the Russian pairs team. There's a series on Netflix called Bad Sport where there's a whole episode about it and I highly recommend it. She then became a professional skater, officially retiring from her competitive career in 2010. Luckily, Michelle has received a lot of recognition for her career in skating. In 1999, she was given the History Makers Award by the LA Chinese American Museum. She won the Teen Choice Award for Favorite Female Athlete in 2002. She also won the Kids' Choice Awards in the same category in 2003. She traveled to Beijing to accept an award for being the female athlete kids in China most admire in 2005 at their inaugural Kids' Choice Awards. The Women's Sports Foundation honored Michelle with the Billie Jean Award for her contribution in women's sports in 2007. In 2009, she was honored by the LA Chinese Historical Society of Southern California in celebrating Chinese Americans in sports. She has held a number of diplomatic positions since leaving skating as well. She became a diplomacy ambassador in 2006. On December 5th, 2021, President Joe Biden, who she had worked with previously in the Obama administration, announced that he intended to nominate Michelle as the U.S. ambassador to Belize. She was confirmed by the Senate with a voice vote on December 29th, 2002, and received her appointment that October. She now lives in Belize with her family, doing her job. Michelle had many endorsements throughout her career, such as Campbell's Soup, Chevrolet, Coca-Cola, Disney, Got Milk, Kraft Cheese, Mattel Toys, McDonald's, Minute Maid, Starbucks, United Airlines, Visa, Yoplait, Rydell Skates, and more. And I don't think any of that would have happened if Tiffany and Christy weren't there to pave the way. Lastly, I want to talk about today's most well-known Asian American skater, or just maybe well-known figure skater in general in the entire world, Nathan Chen. He is regarded as one of the greatest figure skaters of all time and holds the highest winning percentage in competitions in the modern era, with a winning streak lasting more than three years from 2018 to 2021. He is credited for pushing athletic boundaries in the sports and is affectionately known as the Quad King for mastering all six quads. He was the first skater in history to land five quads in competition, as well as the first to land six, then eight. He has broken world and national records time and time again and is the current world record holder for men in all three competition segments, short program, long program, and combined total score under the ISU judging system. 
Nathan is the first Asian American man to win U.S. World and Olympic titles in figure skating. When he was only 17 years old, he became the youngest champion since Dick Button in 1946 to win nationals. Nathan was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Chinese immigrant parents Zai Dong, a research scientist, and Hetty. Nathan originally dreamed of being a hockey goalie after watching his older brothers play, but his mom gave him figure skates instead. To supplement his skating, Nathan's mom signed him up for gymnastics and ballet classes to build up his strength and coordination. He would actually go on to train with Ballet West Academy for more than six years and competed in gymnastics at the state level, winning the all-around at the Utah Boys State Gymnastics Championships in 2008. That's probably why he can do a backflip on ice now. I never knew that. On top of all of that, he was an accomplished pianist as a child, and still is. He won many piano competitions as a kid. And he and his whole family are super into chess. Nathan is also incredibly smart, so I assume he did really, really well in school. He's just like the golden child. There was a major boom in kids signing up for skating lessons in Utah after the 2002 Winter Olympics since they took place in his hometown. He would later say how much skaters like Michelle Kwan and Christy Yamaguchi inspired him, saying, Growing up in Salt Lake City, where most of my classmates and fellow athletes were predominantly white, you don't see the reflection of yourself as easily. I see myself in these athletes, and I see how capable they are and how talented they are. If they can do it, hopefully I can do the same thing too. He began skating at the age of three, like me, in coach Stephanie Grosscup's beginner class. He even entered his first competition when he was only three years old. You can find this video online and oh my gosh, so precious. By the age of only seven, he was competing at the U.S. Junior Figure Skating Championships at lower levels. He moved up to the novice level for the 2009-2010 season and won the 2010 National Championships, becoming the youngest novice men's champion in history at the age of 10. Because of his young age, he was held back in the novice level for another year, winning the national title again in 2011, finishing almost 36 points ahead of second place. That's not even fair. He won his first junior men's U.S. title in 2012 and made his first international appearance that year, winning the novice event at a Grand Prix competition in Italy. In his early years, he was coached by Carol Cover, who used to train with Alexi Mishen. Alexi Mishin is regarded as probably, again, being one of the biggest legends in coaching and figure skating in history. He is a Russian coach. He had a lot of Russian men win Olympic medals and national titles and all sorts of things all throughout the 90s and 2000s. And he was really, really revered during this whole time. Luckily for me, he would come to our rink a couple of times a year to coach our coaches and the skaters. So I never had any private lessons with him, but I definitely took a lot of lessons from him in general. And I was taught in his skating technique style. Uh, he's also a major perv, but I won't focus on that right now. <laughs> Nathan worked with his coach, Carol, until he was about nine, and then he began working with Michelle's former coach and jump specialist, Raphael Aratuian, when he was 10 years old, and he has been with Roth ever since. His family didn't have a lot of money to afford the constant traveling around the country for training, new costumes, skate repairs, and coaches, and sometimes Nathan and his mom had to sleep in the car. His mother would pay Raph, then he would sneak it back to Nathan, who would then try to sneak the money back into his coach's pocket when he wasn't looking. I can't imagine being a kid and worrying so much about money, but also knowing that you're so gifted at skating that you just can't stop. When he was 11 years old, he looked at his mom and said, Mom, if we do not move, I will not make it. The Chens decided they would split up the family and Nathan and his mom would relocate to Southern California, making Roth his primary coach in 2011. His senior national debut did not go as planned in 2015. A week before, he developed a growth-related heel injury and placed eighth overall. He still did qualify for Junior Worlds, though, there placing fourth. In 2016, he made history again as the first U.S. man to land two quad jumps in a short program at Nationals, as well as completing quad jumps in the long program. 2017 began Nathan's first Olympic season. He did a change-up with his skating style and began working with choreographers Shaylin Bourne and Lori Nichol, who gave his skating a new artistic flair that really suited his style of skating. He won his first International Grand Prix title that year, beating out champion Yuzuru Hanyu. 
He was the first U.S. man to win the final since Evan Lysacek in 2009. At the 2018 Nationals, which served as the Olympic Trials, he performed a total of seven clean quads, winning his second national title and earning him a spot on the Olympic team with Adam Rapon and Vincent Zhu. I would be mentioning Vincent more in this episode, but he's a Trump supporter, so no thank you. Now, Nathan's performance at the 2018 Olympics was painful. The poor guy. At 18, he had the weight and expectations of the world on him, and he just cracked. His first three programs he skated were painful to watch, with one uncharacteristic mistake after another. But he finally skated a clean program and earned a new personal best score in his final performance of the competition. And he also made history for the first skater to land six quads in a free skate. With that one amazing skate, he placed fifth overall. Shortly after the Olympics were Worlds, and he won his first world title. His margin of victory over second place, Shoma Uno, was 47.63 points, the greatest difference in a score at Worlds, Olympic, or Grand Prix competition in history. In the spring of 2018, he began his studies at Yale University as a full-time student and athlete. Now, just a reminder, he was still going through his winning streak at this time. Now, let's fast forward to 2020. With the pandemic raging, skaters were largely assigned to the 2020-2021 Grand Prix based on geographical location. He also announced that he would be taking a break from his studies to focus on the 2022 Olympics. He said, this, he said, was the driving force behind a lot of what we do and a lot of the decisions we make. In 2022, he was the sole U.S. men's entry for the Olympics in the team event. He skated clean and placed first, securing 10 points for Team USA. He remarked, it feels great to have a short program I actually skated well at an Olympic experience. Nathan won the Olympic gold in the individual event, a lifelong dream recognized. Nathan has many endorsement deals. He's popular as fuck, including deals with Bridgestone, Panasonic, Comcast, Nike, Toyota, Visa, Coca-Cola, United Airlines, and Kellogg's. He's a brand ambassador for Panasonic and fronted their Green Impact initiative alongside tennis player Naomi Osaka and swimmer Michael Phelps. He also supports some charitable causes. Since 2017, he has been involved with Figure Skating in Harlem, a nonprofit aiming to help girls of color transform their lives and grow confidence, leadership, and academic achievement. He also works with Stand Up for Kids, a national nonprofit which strives to end unhoused youth. He is an investor in the nonprofit collective Gold House, which advances the interest and safety of people of AAPI descent. When violence against Asian Americans was staggering during the pandemic, he spoke out. He said, I worry about my parents more than I worry about myself. I don't want them to go out in the park or walk and then get beat up or have worse things happen to them. He partnered with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 2022 to aid them in their public education initiative campaign, We Can Do This, promoting the importance of COVID vaccines. Lastly, after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Nathan issued a statement on his social media supporting a woman's right to choose and donated money to the National Network of Abortion Funds. Nathan is due to graduate from Yale School of Medicine in 2024, and plans to then go into the pre-med program in preparation for med school. So those are some of my absolute favorite Asian American skaters that I've been able to learn about and experience and love and watch since I was a very, very little girl. I am such a huge Nathan Chen fan, even though we always know he's going to win. I just fucking love that guy. And seeing him go from, you know, the worst skates ever in 2018 to shining at the 2022 Olympics, just looking like he was having so much fun. Like the first time he just looked so scared and nervous and uptight. And he was like super tight. That's probably why he messed up so much. But the second time he was just like, you know what? This is my time. This is my time to go out and skate the way that I know I can and do it for myself. I'm going to skate to Elton John and just have a good time. And it was such a beautiful thing watching him win the Olympics in 2022. 
All right, that's all I have for you today in the world of Asian American figure skating. But if there's any topics that you want for me to cover in the future, I would really, really love to have your suggestions. So please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or drop me a DM on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. I am still cooking up some ideas about possibly having a merch contest. So if you're interested in that, please reach out to me because I would really, really love to do something like that. I really want to use everybody's art, but I want there to be like a quote unquote winner for like a draw or whatever to win a little something special from me. Another quick reminder that Patreon is a thing. Go to the link in the bio or patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist if you want to support me a little bit more. I would love it. Also, another amazing way to show your support for the show is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you like the show, as well as giving it a rate on Spotify. All right, that's everything I have for you today. I had so much fun doing this episode. Thank you so much for listening. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on and skate on, baby. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.